as you've been hearing in the news. So today I am confirming that the Site C Clean Energy Project will be completed. That decision came through due diligence and care and deliberation on what was in the best interest of all British Columbians. And I believe today we've made the right decision. That is Premier John Horgan speaking just a short time ago, announcing that the Site C Dam project will be going ahead. Let's bring in George Hoberg, a UBC political science professor on the line with us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, Your thoughts on this? Not a huge surprise, I'm sure, that the announcement was it's going ahead. Uh, Yeah, I guess there are a lot of technical problems you can solve with $16 billion. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the price tag a little bit, because we knew it was already over budget. The newer figure, now more than $5 billion over budget. And when the Premier was asked in several different ways earlier, how can we be sure it's not going to cost even more? uh, He he kind of danced around that a little bit. Yeah, because I I think he knows that it will cost more. Uh, The most striking thing to me that is still outstanding about this project is that the West Moberly have a very serious land claim issue that that their uh, title rights have been infringed. And um, solving that problem is likely to cost a lot of money. And whether or not that gets counted in the Site C budget or some other uh, budget, it's going to be more costly. Uh, Not a surprise. There was no mention of that, at least in the announcement part of the news conference earlier today. But I've heard the members of the West Moberly First Nation talking about this. And so what what do you think that means as far as the project? Because one of the the concerns has been that uh, the precedent that we've seen in courts, I think the Sparrow decision, uh, they're claiming that that was not even considered when this project was was given the go-ahead, even with that uh, opposition. Uh, So they're still challenging. Challenging it. Does that mean, what does that mean for the project, do you think? Well, I don't think it's going to stop the project. I, I think that the question that's out there is if there is a finding of infringement that uh, occurs, uh, what will the compensation cost for that infringement be? And again, that will come to the government of British Columbia and they'll have to find a way uh, to budget that somehow. What do you think of the the political part of this in that it was only a few seconds into the news conference today? It was actually in the premier's first comment. He made reference to the fact that they inherited this from the B.C. Liberals, really trying to put any of the issues, the problems, the negative part of this on the B.C. Liberals. Yeah, I found that incredibly fascinating because I remember very clearly the day that he so reluctantly with his heavy heart uh, decided to continue uh, with the project in 2017 after everyone thought that they were going to cancel it. Uh, So it was very interesting. But what, to his credit, I mean, Horgan knew then that what he was essentially doing is buying political ownership over the project. And he was now going to be responsible for dealing with uh, the consequences of cost overruns and other problems. And he, he, he did that effectively today, I thought. Uh, He also knew that he couldn't be in a position where he would still need the support of the Green Party to go ahead and make this announcement today. Yeah, I mean, he he did go ahead without the Green Party support last time. And and Andrew Weaver decided not to uh, force an election over it because he had bigger uh, climate issues. But the the political implications of it are are very interesting, in part because another thing that Horgan knew is that if he were to say no, the cost of saying no would have also been huge. They would have lost all the money they put into the project and they would have to pay very significant amounts to uh, buy out contracts that have been let to uh, construction firms and also to remediate the site. 
Plus, they'd have to replace the power that we were anticipating uh, coming from that. And that would also be expensive. Uh, he did mention that as well, saying that uh, part of the reason that the costs have gone up is because of the pandemic. Uh, he did say if it was cancelled, uh, BC would be out billions of dollars. Uh, that it w- that those costs that you just mentioned, and putting about forty five hundred people out of work. Uh, it seemed like in that sense, the pandemic kind of worked in his favor because who wants to be the person that during uh, while we're dealing with this pandemic then puts a bunch of people out of work. Yeah, so uh, it's a very complicated issue, and it reveals uh, a lot of the the political uh, context within which the NDP government works, including the fact that they have strong support from uh, unionized construction workers. There's so much talk of challenges of people who are opposed to this for environmental reasons, people saying we don't need the power, uh, other making arguments that when this does come online, much of the power will be exported. It's not going to be a benefit to British Columbians. Uh, But then we also talk about the fact that we are going to be shifting to this type of power even more in the future. I mean, we have cities that are saying only electric vehicles will be allowed. Will this be something that is needed or is this something that is needed by British Columbia? I actually think it's incredibly important, not just for British Columbia, but for Western North America. Uh, the, as an energy project, it's a wonderful project, if we can ever get it built, because the special thing about big dams is that they allow you to store electricity very inexpensively and then dispatch it whenever you need to. So if we get better connections uh, with Alberta, that is uh, high voltage transmission line connections, uh, we can help them firm up the wind power that they're going to be putting um, it, they'll be installing to replace the coal plants they're shutting down. Uh, we could also export that power to uh, the Pacific Northwest and, in fact, all of the Western United States because we're all part of the same uh, big transmission grid. Uh, so it may not be used all the time directly in British Columbia, but even so it will benefit British Columbians because those other jurisdictions will be paying us for that electricity. All right. George Holberg, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Thank you. George Hoberg is a UBC political science professor. Thanks for being with us. A lot of people calling the buzz line and talking about the uh, Site C Dam, the project going ahead. Not a huge surprise to a lot of people. We now know, though, it is going to be more than $5 billion over budget and not completed uh, on time, given the first timeline of the project, but at least a year down the road. Let's bring in Tom Shipka, the BC Liberal MLA for Kootenai East, the Energy Mines and Low Carbon Innovation Critic. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Miss Bennett. You've got an easier name to pronounce than mine. So <laughs> you know what? I was practicing it before because I, I, I hate mispronouncing people's names, and I think I did bungle it, so my apologies. Well, I've been called a lot worse. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us and talking about this. Uh, what are your thoughts on the announcement today? Well, I mean, the announcement that the project will proceed is, 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 is good for me, I, and I think a lot, a lot of British Columbians as well. Uh, it's going to provide clean, green, renewable power for the next 100 years or so. It'll fire up new, uh, new industry and, uh, and also homes and businesses for 450,000 residents. So it's a, it's a good thing, and it's a, and it's a good day for that. However, what's uh, not so great is obviously the, the ballooned cost to $16 billion where you know, it's essentially a doubling of, of the project costs since uh, it was uh, first announced in, a, in 2017. So uh, not, not great there. 
Uh, no, and uh, the Premier, uh, we mentioned this earlier, he wasn't even, I think, 10 seconds into the announcement where he kind of, well, he did mention the BC Liberal Party and talked about the fact that the, his his government had kind of been saddled with this project. Uh, we didn't hear exactly where those cost overruns are or where they're coming from. Uh, we do know that some of them are because of this pandemic, but not all of them. And that certainly has people concerned that we're not going to, that this isn't the last of it, that we're going to see even more ballooning costs. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm fearful that as well. I mean, we've seen precedent set by this government time and time again, and uh, we're seeing it here in real time with uh, the Site C project. Uh, you know, in 2017, I was in the, the estimates with the minister at that time, Mr. Minister Mangal, and the quote-unquote uh, for the Site C project uh, in December of 2017 was that it was on time and on budget. Uh, they examined. Uh, shelving the project in early 2018, and at that point, uh, it would have been come, it would have come at a cost of about four billion dollars. Uh, now we've seen that cost go to ten billion dollars, and now they're still talking about uh, you know possibly shelving it. But now, obviously, today the the ministers or the the premier has announced that it will go forward. But uh, it just seems like this perpetual uh, mismanagement that's it started ever since they took over this project has really got us to the point where. It's uh, it's getting out of hand. Uh, does the Liberal Party, though, or the BC Liberals, uh, the governing body at the time, do they not bear some of the blame in that uh, there were things that happened as far as geotechnical reports and issues with the ground and issues with the construction that happened years ago? Yeah, well, those geotechnical issues were uh, were uh, realized in 2018. Uh, as I said before, on time and on budget means just that. Uh, at that point, it was about $8.58 billion for the project. We were about uh, a quarter of the way in, or not even quite a quarter of the way in. Uh, the BCNDP took over government. They examined it. They platformed on it. I mean, we saw, uh, you know, paddling for the peace and, and shutting this down as their platform. Uh, so they, they they looked at that, and they uh, so they took it upon themselves to say, well, we're going to go ahead with this project. And now today you're seeing, you know, all kinds of um, glorious uh you know, accolades being brought to this project. You've heard Ralston saying, uh, this is great for BC, this is going to, you know, electrify our economy and this and that. So they can have their cake and eat it too. Do they, do they want the project or do they not want the project? They've taken it on and they bear the, they, they bear the, uh, the brunt of responsibility here. Uh, the West Moberly First Nation has filed a legal petition. They are challenging this uh, as far as saying uh, they're not on board with this and they feel that uh, that going ahead with this dam, that the, the case has not been made, that the need for the dam outweighs uh, the, the, the rights of the West Moberly First Nation. Uh, this is something also that, that dates back several years. So what are your thoughts on the fact that there are still these challenges? Yeah, and it's unfortunate. Uh, you know that 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 speaks to transparency of government. That speaks to where has the communication been with the West Moberly up until this point? Is why is it why is it coming to the forefront now? Um, you know, transparency and accountability is a big thing in government, and it, we just haven't seen that with this government uh, on this project and many other things. So I think those those concerns are going to be brought to um, court next year, I believe, with the West Moberly. And we'll see what how how the government responds, but they have to identify issues, of course, with our First Nation partners for sure. Uh, transparency has been a big issue as far as reports that have been prepared uh, for by special advisors, uh, government commission reports that I think the public would like to see the details and would like to have been kept informed throughout the process. Uh, that hasn't happened. But what do you think about transparency in general and what British Columbians should be able to see? 
Well, this is a, this uh, this project represents the largest public infrastructure project in our history, and now it's twice as big, <laughs> and uh, and it, it's owned by the people of British Columbia. So the people of British Columbia need to see they need the government needs to be transparent. We we've had a, a report from Peter Milburn. We knew that there was geotechnical issues back in 2018. We've never seen the details of those. We've had BC Hydro quarterly reports that have been um, not there. I mean, uh, Mr. Ralston is asking for those reports, but those have not been presented. And we've seen the Peter Milburn report until today, finally rear its head after months being in NDP hands. So, you know, it's. I understand uh, the NDP are upset at this, but the people of British Columbia need to be informed. They need to be, uh, government needs to be transparent. Uh, and what do you say to people who are opposed to, to the dam saying uh, that we don't need this project, that British Columbians don't need it? Uh, and they put some of that, uh, obviously, on the, the Liberal government, the previous Liberal government uh, as well. Well, you can see how long these projects take. They don't, they don't happen overnight. And we, we, have to, uh, we have to assume that, you know, we will, will be in, in bigger demand of, of power in the future. And not only just power, BC can can really be proud that we're about 98% um, uh, uh, green and clean on our energy production here in BC, not like a lot of jurisdictions in the world. So this project is is good for many things. Um, It it, it, uh, identifies the demand that we're going to see in the future. We're talking about, you know, shipping LNG to... uh, to Asia, and we need, and through that, we need to electrify that industry. That's going to that's going to be uh, that's going to come at a, at a big cost uh, electrically in the province. So we need we need to identify things down the road. And, and as I said, this project isn't for now. It's not for tomorrow, but it's for a hundred years from now. So this is a legacy that we will leave behind. Um, unfortunately, uh, with with what we government has done this, um, it's leaving a, a, bit, a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. All right, so we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. You bet, Jill. Thank you. All right, that is Tom Shapika, BC Liberal MLA for Kootenai East and the Energy Mines and Low Carbon Innovation Critic. Well, some big news when it comes to COVID-19 vaccine. Earlier today, it was announced Canada has approved the Oxford AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine. That makes it the third vaccine officially authorized in this country following Pfizer and Moderna. Let's talk a little bit more about this and what this means as far as the fight against COVID-19. Dr. Horacio Bach, an adjunct professor with the Division of Infectious Disease at UBC, is joining me once again. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, how much of a game changer is it that we now have this third vaccine approved? I think they are fantastic news. And then we are including now a third vaccine, the vaccination. Um, Canada secured 20 million doses, and this vaccine should be administered also with two doses. So basically, we can cover 10 million people. That is um, very important for our population. And it sounds like this vaccine as well doesn't require uh, some of the storing temperatures that we had earlier uh, issues with with uh, the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, is it a more hardy vaccine? Uh, well, it's, it's a different technology. And the um, it's, those are, of course, uh, very interesting news because you don't need any uh, freezing temperature, as you mentioned. You just can, you know, you, you can transport this vaccine just with a ice pack or, you know, keeping your regular fridge. So that will be very easy to uh, roll this vaccine to remote um, uh, communities or inaccessible areas. So it's, it's great because, again, you can keep in the fridge. You don't need 
uh, deep temperatures. Uh, some of the numbers that have come out and the fact that in uh, in some cases that uh, we've seen countries actually stop the use of this vaccine uh, because uh, of some questions about whether or not it works against uh, COVID-19 variants. But the numbers as well, people will hear, I think, that uh, the effective rate, uh, the efficacy rate around 62 percent for this uh, vaccine compared to some others that are in the 90s. How concerned should people be about that? Um, that's true, 62%. The, pro- the point is that the, no matter what, you increase the vaccination in the population. So um, uh, what is um, published also by the company that you re- reduce the severity of the disease. It means that even you have 62% efficacy, the rest is not that you are going to have a severe disease. That will be a very mild disease or may you, you or very uh, mild uh, symptoms. So no matter what, you are covering a big gap of the population that is not vaccinated right now. And 10 million is a lot. So I don't think it's a problem. It's just a, a, a reducing the problem that we have with the severity. When you don't have the vaccine, can be uh, severe. When you have the vaccine, even if it's 60% efficacy, you still may have the disease, but not as severe as the, without vaccination. Right, because I think in, in the trials, when we got the numbers from the, the, the clinical trials of this, even though the, the efficacy rate of 62% uh, compared again to the higher rates with the, the other vaccine, uh, I believe I'm remembering this correctly, it was 100% that people who got this vaccine didn't have to be hospitalized and didn't die, which to me sounds like a pretty good outcome. Exactly. What exactly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the point is that uh, you reduce the severity. So no matter if you, even if you have 60 percent, 60 percent, 62 percent, sorry, uh, people, they didn't show that they are sick, but the rest were not in a severe case. Again, as you said, is, you know, very mild, treatable or, you know, uh, with a, a basic uh, um, taking care of you so you can um, go over this disease without problem. Uh, I got a question to the show uh, yesterday, yeah. uh, might have been the day before, and I get this question quite often. Uh, so in this scenario, do, does it matter which vaccine you get for then? Because, and in that case, what we're just talking about, you still can get COVID-19, but it's not going to kill you and it's not going to put you in the hospital. Can you also, though, can you still then, even though you've been vaccinated, then can you pass it on to other people? Yes, that is something that was studied and that you are vaccinated doesn't mean that you cannot be uh, transmitting the the virus. The virus will go in your body. Uh, They are not going to cause a disease because you have the antibodies, but it doesn't mean that can go out and continue to look for new hosts. So it's very important, even if you are vaccinated, continue to use the mask because that is the way we reduce the transmission. We have to understand that more people are vaccinated, less possibility the virus has to infect because they're looking for new people, okay, new hosts, what we call. If you don't find, the virus will disappear. So the idea is to reduce this transmission by the vaccine, but also keep in mind that it's better or, you know, follow the guidelines of the health authorities, continue with the same guidelines we have, two meters distance, wear a mask and so on. It's very important to reduce that. Right. And is it the idea then we would have to continue doing that until we reach 80% vaccination? 
Yes, yeah. the point is a little, um, it's, it's not defined probably because, you know, we have these new variants that uh, at this point we don't know what will be the effect. And that is a concern. That's the reason uh, Moderna is uh, t- uh, developing now a booster for those that they got the previous uh, vaccine just to cover the variant as well. I'm sure that uh, in a short time, maybe we'll have like a cocktail of vaccine and in one shot that will cover, say, the original strain and the variants. That takes uh, time to develop, but, um, you know, variants can appear at any time. There's no time you say, okay, even if we get to the 80%, you still have a 20% that will get the disease and then develop a new variant, I mean, a mutation that is not recognized by the vaccine you got. So right. it's, it's, it's a game here that nobody can answer this, uh, this question yet. Uh, is there a difference? And when people hear that the, the first two vaccines that were approved are the mRNA vaccine, whereas this one is the viral vaccine, is there a difference in, in the vaccine? Do you think people would want to choose one over, an, uh, one over the other? Um. The well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if you will have the option, or you need to get the vaccine that public health is saying, okay, we have this. No, you you get vaccinated. Um, the point is the the viral vaccine, as you mentioned, is based on a virus that is not COVID nineteen virus. Is something is used already in in vaccination. It was proved in the coronavirus, what uh, we 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 called MERS, that was like a a disease uh, similar to SARS, what we call in the Middle East. And now they are working on developing with the same platform against Zika virus that I guess the, the audience knows this disease that a, a, a newborn that with a reduced head, a, what we call microcephaly, and other vaccines they are under this a platform. It's a platform that is known, and it's a platform that also is used for a while in UK because it was approved a while ago and it looks like it's safe. So we don't think that um, there is nothing yet that's saying, oh, this vaccine, you know, we tested over 20 million people and we don't see any side effect or any issue. So, you know, more than likely we are not going to see new cases. So of uh, any any issue, basically. So I think the vaccine, the, this vaccine is safe, even if it's another platform, it works as well. They use the same spike protein that produced the virus that is produced in our body. And it's a vaccine that the platform is known for many years. So it's not something new as well. All right. Uh, Dr. Bach, we'll leave it there for today. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You too. That is Dr. Horacio Bach, adjunct professor uh, in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Well, here is a story. You may have heard it yesterday. If you haven't heard this, it's about an investigation launched based on the actions of some Vancouver police officers. The sight of a dead body lying in the sand of Third Beach was shocking. But what Zachary Ratcliffe said he saw afterwards was equally hard to watch. Ratcliffe says he witnessed a Vancouver police officer posing for pictures and laughing just meters from the body. The entire scene caught on camera. He even asked the two attending officers if it was a deceased person. They confirmed it was. Vancouver police say the video has been sent to the office of the police complaint commissioner. The status of the officers is also under review. VBD adding it does not condone and prohibits officers from taking photographs without an authorized purpose. John Hua, Global News.
All right, that story from John Waugh. We are now joined by Cash Heed, a former West Vancouver police chief. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, what would you have done if this, if you were still the chief of, of the Vancouver Police Force, or West, sorry, the West Vancouver Force or any force, and you heard uh, that your officers had been engaged, involved in this kind of activity? Well, their uh, exercise of very, very poor judgment is bothering a lot of people, not only within the ranks, but my understanding in the community. Instead of trying to spin doctor it and move it to someone else and prolong this for four months, you've got to get out there. The chief should have got out there, and he needs to get out there now. He needs to apologize. He needs to reinforce the policy. He needs to get those members out there to apologize and ensure that this is not going to happen again. This is very worrisome, and the fact that now we're going into what I uh, assume will be a prolonged internal investigation, uh, and again, bring it up instead of correcting the behavior right now. This is not the case of what happened a week earlier around pulling the ponytail and the excessive use of force. This is just poor judgment exercised by a members or members of the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, do you think it's something that uh, an apology is enough, or does there need to be some kind of punishment? Well, you, you want to deter the behavior. These, uh, from what I can tell, are young officers that are probably just starting out their career. We've got this uh, phenomenon taking place in uh, policing with a lot of our young officers that are really caught in this tech environment, and they create these chat groups. And what I've seen is some of these images are shared in these chat groups, which police leaders have to get a hold of and they have to ensure their strict policy is actually followed by people. So if, in fact, You've got this policy, reinforce that policy, and if members do not follow it, then you've got to use progressive discipline in this respect. Uh, it's different, though, isn't it, when we're talking about uh, maybe, uh, you know, in on your break or in your squad car or talking to your colleagues, you might say something that's not deemed correct, but it's between the two of you or three of you, and that's as far as it goes. So, or it's on a, on a chat room or it's on your phone, you're texting, and that's it. Different, isn't it? I mean, this happened on a beach on the seawall where people, a very public place where people were walking by and witnessed this. Absolutely. We should be very cognizant. And I tell police officers that whenever they're out there in the public and they're actually doing what they get paid to do, they have to operate like they're being photographed and and filmed every single minute, because usually that is what is happening now when there's any engagement of police out there to deal with any of the investigations that are going on or even with public. You've got to operate under that atmosphere at this particular time. There's no other way you are going to do it and stay out of uh, harm's way in in the way you're acting out there and in in this particular fashion that we've witnessed again from someone's cell phone video. Uh, I would imagine that that there's not a line or a training manual that includes the line uh, when in public and you're responding to a body that is on a beach, don't take a picture or a selfie with yourself. Well, I'll use a word, and it may be a little harsh, but stupidity is hard to teach a lot of people. But again, uh, we've got to make sure that we bring the right people. We're hiring the right people in policing. We're recruiting the right people. We're training them properly, supervising them, and disciplining them so we don't have this type of behavior repeat itself.
I think people will look at this particular scenario and because it did happen on a public beach beside a very busy seawall, one of the questions that raises is, well, if these officers are doing this in a place where they know it's very likely someone's going to take a photo or video, what else are they doing and what are they doing when people can't see them? Is this another reason why we should be considering body cameras for police officers when they're on duty? Absolutely. I'm a proponent of body cameras. We've talked about it. We've been talking about it for 13 years. This is a key example of if, in fact, those officers were wearing body cameras, would they have thought once again of doing something of this nature? Whenever you're dealing with, for example, the video of the use of force where the girl was pulled on the ponytail, would they have acted that way if they had known that their actions are being monitored by themselves with body cameras. Body cameras have such a great utility in policing, not only to ensure there is proper use of force, proper behavior of our police officers, but the gathering of evidence. So we, we heard the Prime Minister about a year ago talk about the fact that we were going to outfit our police officers, uh, the RCMP, the Federal Force across Canada. We've heard other jurisdictions talk about it, but we've had very little movement except in Calgary, who has it. Toronto is looking at it, and Jill, the bylaw officers in Burnaby are going to be outfitted with body cams before we have any police department in British Columbia outfitted with them. What is the reluctance then? What, what is the argument against them? Uh, police leaders will use the excuse that it's costly. And I uh, tell them all when I'm talking to them that you've got to look at the cost of not doing it. And I think that has been the apprehension uh, moving forward on it. We, we've heard about the lack of policy, but there is policy in place. Uh, so they're running out of excuses going forward. So we need to ensure that we have, for example, these boards that are uh, really in tune to what is going on, the, the value of having this piece of equipment for their officers. And in the long run, you will garnish those economies of scale on the budgeting side of it by the use of this technology. Because doesn't it also protect the officers? If an officer is in a scenario with no witnesses, with only one other person or something questionable happens, uh, I get the body cameras don't tell us everything, but it does it not also protect the officer in that case? It absolutely does uh, protect the officers, and I think that's why some of the unions that are pushing back against it should realize, and they should consider this a benefit for their officers, because if your officers, and they're, they're making a considerable amount of, of money, you know, they're in uh, you know, six-figure uh, wages per year, uh, if they're operating the way we expect them, the way they're trained to, they've got nothing to worry about. This will just enhance uh, their side of the story of what is actually taking place in their interactions with public. We've got this real public debate here on street checks. If we had these body cameras, we'd really understand if, in fact, those street checks uh, are needed or we should carry on with them. So this is one uh, significant tool that needs to be added uh, to the operating procedures in policing. Whose decision would it be then as far as could it be department by department, say Vancouver Police could go ahead and do this? and and Richmond RCMP could do this or is it different as far as does it have to be more of a, a, a like a province-wide decision or something like that? 
It could be all of those. We've got a special legislative committee in Victoria now that's looking at reforms to the BC Police Act. You could enshrine that in the Police Act that any peace officer operating in the province of British Columbia must be outfitted with this type of technology if they're having any engagement with the public. It can be done from a federal point of view, or it could be done by each local government if they choose to do it. I would like to see it come from the province under the Police Act, so it's mandated for all peace officers in British Columbia. And that would include not only police officers, it would include some of the other officials that we have that engage with uh, suspects or engage with uh, the community or the public. Right, so even, uh, say, like a, a sheriff at the courthouse or something like that? Correct. All right, Cash Heed, thanks for your time today. Appreciate you coming on the show to talk about this. Pleasure, Jill. That is Cash Heed, former police chief in West Vancouver. Thanks for being with us. Well, taking a look at some new research. It was done by Research Co. And it has to do with dog owners in BC saying they are more likely to have acquired a pet for recreational purposes, things like exercising, walking more. We've certainly heard about that during the pandemic. And this poll also looks at where Canadians and British Columbians in particular get their pets, whether they go to a breeder or to a rescue or to other some other kind of animal shelter. Some interesting findings. So we wanted to talk to an expert about that. Eileen Draver joins me now, Senior Officer of Protection and Stakeholder Relations at the BC SBCA. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I really wouldn't consider myself an expert. <laughs> I've been with the BCSPC for 40 years, so I can I can compare figures from 40 years ago till now. All right, well, that gives, that's expertise that not everybody has, for sure. <laughs> Um, I guess not a huge surprise that, that because we have talked about this, uh, I mean, even six months ago, seven months ago, um, that people were realizing, hey, I'm home a whole lot more. And that's not probably it's not likely to change anytime soon. Uh, so they have brought animals into their home. Are we seeing more and more of that? I think so. And I think it's a good thing. You know, animals provide us with unconditional love. And it's amazing how therapeutic they are for us. Especially during the times where people are feeling isolated, they've always got their little companion there, um, whether wagging their tail or sh- shaking a paw or or whatever. They just they're, they're so therapeutic. And I, I was just thinking there. I was checking the poll and I was thinking back. I've always I've had a dog for the past forty two years actually. So it's amazing. Um, I think I went three days without having a, a dog, and it just felt really odd. I guess so. I, I, it's an mm-hmm. interesting point you bring up because they are so much part of our families and, and it's heartbreaking, as you probably know. Uh, I'm guessing it's not the same dog uh, when we lose yeah. those dogs in our families. But but the way I, I having gone through that, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have, too, is you have all this love that you still want to put somewhere and, and giving it to another dog somehow seems to help. It does. And, and you know, I've said this every time I've lost one. That's it. I'm not going to get my heart broken again. But then why, why wouldn't you do that? You know, um, there's always another animal out there that, that would benefit from taking it in. So, uh, yeah, totally, totally agree with you. And I'm, I'm, it's like a codependency. Um, I think, I think especially during this time, um, 
it's just wonderful to have them with us. Unfortunately, people are also taking advantage of our kindness. And you may find, well, I've seen myself actually, puppies for sale, crossbred puppies for about $1,500, $2,000. And, and people are actually buying them at that price, which is ridiculous. Mm. What I wanted to say was, if you're looking to you know, bring a four-legged or two-legged companion into your home, Check out the local SPCA or a local rescue. Please do not go to a pet store because we have no idea how these animals were bred, how they were shipped. It, it, if you knew, it would break your heart. So, mm. And then if, if you can't go to or the rescue or the shelter doesn't have what you're looking for, go to a reputable breeder. And that, that the reputable breeders are usually members of the Canadian Kennel Club. So that's what I would recommend. Let's look at some of the numbers because the Mm -hmm. the Research Co. poll did ask Canadians uh, that exact thing, where they're they're getting their pets. Uh, 43% Mm -hmm. said they got them directly from a breeder. Uh, 27% saying they adopted or rescued their pet from a shelter. And uh, Mm -hmm. the smallest number is pet stores, which which looks like we're we're going in the right direction. Uh, 13% uh, saying that they purchased their pets at a pet store, a bit higher in Quebec. Uh, some received as a gift, which I know we, we talk about that often around Christmas time, that it's not the, the greatest idea to give somebody a, a pet as a gift. But what do you think about those numbers? Well, it, it doesn't surprise me, actually. Um, and, and as far as um, giving a pet as a gift, studies have shown lately that we, we it used to be the case where animals were returned after Christmas to a shelter. That's not the case now. What we find is people are genuinely appreciative of that gift and they've got so much love to give um so we're not seeing those numbers we did 40 30 or 40 years ago where animals were returned after christmas hmm, that's good that's great news mm-hmm. um, yes. what do you say to one of the the concerns i've heard from people is that as much as they would love to get their animal through their local spca branch and and it's kind of two-sided in that of course you have you're going to do home checks and you're going to make sure it's a great fit but people sometimes say that the rules are so stringent about the size of the yard or where you live uh, that it's so difficult to get an animal through the spca and it's much easier to go through some of the other rescues well, I think that's changed now. We went through a phase where it was pretty difficult because we wanted to make it the perfect match. We can make that perfect match without the stringent rules that we had in the past. So um, I know that we don't have the dogs coming into the shelter the way we do because people are spaying and neutering. Um, 40 years ago, it was when I worked at the Surrey branch, it wasn't unusual to get between three and four, even possibly as high as 500 dogs in a one-month period. Wow. Hmm. I know. Litters upon litters of puppies would come through that shelter. Nowadays, if a, a litter of puppy can, puppies come in, it's, we're all over. It, it, it's, it's a shock. It's quite surprising for us to get litters of puppies. So society as a whole, we're recognizing these animals as sentient beings. We're appreciating them, and we're spaying in your train. 
I know it's, it can be controversial as well to talk about international uh, dogs and dogs that come in from whether it's Southern California or Mexico or, or other countries. Uh, and I know the pandemic has stopped a lot of that. Is there a concern, do you think, that that's going to lead maybe to a shortage or there's going to be animals, especially in California and Mexico, that, that might be euthanized, whereas in the past they would have been brought here for adoption? Uh, Jill, I can't really speak to that because I don't know, I'm not aware of the numbers. And I know a few rescues brought a number of dogs up from California, but I really can't speak to that, unfortunately. No problem. Uh, That goes to, though, uh, people, again, researching. And I'm guessing it's the same. Like you said, if you're going to go through the route of getting a dog through a breeder, make sure it's a reputable breeder. We've unfortunately done uh, tons of stories about the, the, not tons, but many stories about Mm -hmm. uh, that going uh, wrong with, with breeders that, are, are doing awful, awful things. How do you suggest people do their research or what should they do if they are looking that route and, and looking to, to get a, a pet, a dog for their household? Well, what I would suggest you do is go to the breeder's home. Um, if they're going to meet you in the, uh, in the parking lot, that's a red flag right there. But go to the breeder's home, ask for references from other people that have um, adopted or, or purchased a puppy from them and make sure you see the mom and the dad and you don't want to go to a breeder who's constantly breeding their dogs so again if they're registered with the Canadian Kennel Club that's a good sign too. And would you put purchasing dogs off various websites is that kind of in the same boat as going to a pet store? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really, really heartbreaking to think of dogs being continuously bred in barns in dank circumstances. And, you know, unfortunately, people will go into these places and, and, and rescue the animal from this situation, when indeed all we're doing is enabling these individuals to continue on and make lots of money and probably not declare it to Revenue Canada. I know it's tough, isn't it? Because people think they're doing the right thing in rescuing these dogs. But uh, like you said, it's just opening up the space or keeping it going. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was something else, if you don't mind, I'd like to mention. If you're people, if you're looking for a dog trainer, we, the BCSPCA, we have uh, an animal welfare accreditation program. And as you know, uh, dog trainers are not regulated, so they can call themselves a dog trainer without any education or, and, um, and advertise themselves as such. The BCSPCA, our animal kind, we want to make sure that people are using the most humane and kindest methods of training a dog. If you go to our website, um, you can you can see a link with all the accredited dog trainers online. It's really, really valuable. No, we, we don't need to reprimand a dog and uh, choke a dog out. Um, and actually, some of the training methods are just horrific. So please, if you're looking for a dog trainer, go to our website and you'll get a referral to a number of dog trainers in the lower mainland that have been accredited. All right. Very good advice. Eileen, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care. You too. That is Eileen Draver, the Senior Officer Protection and Stakeholder Relations at the BC SBCA. Some really interesting numbers, and these all coming from that research co-poll, taking a look at what Canadians have been doing when it comes to pets, particularly getting dogs during the pandemic. 
Well, workers at a local hotel, this hotel located in Richmond, it's actually one of the federal quarantine hotels, they could possibly go on strike. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Stephanie Fung, spokesperson for Unite Here Local 40. Stephanie, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, What's happening here? We're talking about the Pacific Gateway Hotel uh, in Richmond. It's near uh, the airport for people that aren't familiar with it. What's happening with the staff there? Right. So last night, Pacific Gateway Hotel workers voted 91% in favour of strike action. Uh, The workers voted to strike after the hotel followed through on its threat to terminate laid-off workers, including women with decades of service. And like um, you said before, what's really important to note is that this is a federal quarantine hotel. So when the pandemic struck last March, the federal government took over the hotel, brought in the Red Cross to replace and perform similar job duties that these hotel workers were doing. And the hotel has so far not committed to calling back their pre-pandemic workforce, but instead has been terminating hotel workers. So this is a hotel then that's been been used as a federal quarantine site. It's not one of the, the new ones that was brought online with the travel rules changing on the 22nd? Exactly. So since um, March 2020, um, the hotel has been taken over by the federal government government for for quarantine. Right. Which which when you hear that, people would probably think, well, wouldn't that mean that there are more people staying there? Because we know hotels haven't been near capacity with people not traveling. So you would think that that would lead to more guests staying uh, there and there would be the opportunity for more work. Exactly. Um, It's it's clear that the hotel um, hasn't been closed at all during this entire time. Um, it's still open for business. So um, that's why we're questioning why hasn't Pacific Gateway committed to ensuring that hotel workers can be called back to work when the industry recovers. So how many workers are we talking about that are waiting or have been waiting to be recalled? Um, there are 150 people who are at risk of losing their jobs and they're waiting to be um, recalled back to their work. And if they're concerned that the hotel is going to go away and just terminate or are going to go the route of terminating them, uh, is there concern that if the workers go on strike, uh, that the, the hotel could go ahead and do that anyway? Um, you know, workers are prepared to go on strike if, you know, they're, they're here. This is, these are their careers and they're willing to do whatever it takes to protect their jobs and make sure that they have um, jobs to go back to when the industry recovers. And at this point, then, what what are the are the main issues? The fact that they haven't been recalled, that the federal government has taken over this hotel, or other other issues as well that have led to this uh, pretty strong mandate—the ninety-one percent vote for strike action. Yeah. So one one reason, um, you know, um, the hotel has been open, has been doing business um, when the pandemic struck. It was taken over by the federal government, and another thing is that um, these. The, the dozen of workers who were terminated in February were just terminated without any cause. The hotel um, said there's no more business. It's, it's, there's, it's not feasible to hire back the workforce. But we know that there's a vaccine on its way. Um, the industry is definitely going to recover. And we believe that Pacific Gateway is using the pandemic as an excuse to fire work, these workers and replace them with cheaper hires. Um, and workers need jobs to go back to. They need that for the recovery. And most of these are women and immigrants. And, um, you know, the government says we're in this together. But what's happening now is, is that the hotel industry is taking over. Um, it's taking advantage of the pandemic to get rid of its long-term workers.
And is the concern mainly or solely with Pacific Gateway with the hotel ownership itself? Or are there also concerns that because this is a quarantine hotel and the federal government has come in with Red Cross workers, that that move in itself has also displaced workers? Um, The federal government brought in the Red Cross to replace um, workers, hotel workers, and asked them to perform similar job duties. And this has also displaced the pre-pandemic workforce. So um, we see the federal government as having some sort of responsibility as well in displacing these hotel workers. Uh, Because presumably if the workers wanted to, or or are there concerns among the workers as well with it being a quarantine hotel that they have a a bigger possibility of being exposed to COVID-19? Hotel workers are aware of that. Um, But, you know, these are long-term workers. They've had... um, a lot of they have years of training and experience to clean and sanitize hotel hotel rooms, and um, what they really want is to be able to return to their jobs when the when the pandemic is over and when when jobs um, are called back. So right now they just really want to return to their jobs and and you know being um, aware of COVID in there they're willing to you know take the necessary training if that's what it's needed and they're already very well trained to clean these rooms. All right. So what happens next with the the strike vote of 91 percent again? uh, When does that put them in a legal position where they could go on strike? Uh, Right now, workers are prepared to issue a strike notice anytime. All right. It's imminent. Yeah. All right. Well, we will continue uh, watching and seeing what happens uh, with that. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us with the very latest on that. Thanks for having me. All right. That is Stephanie Fung, spokesperson for Unite Here, Local 40.